This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to, I'm just going to show some slides. I'm going to have some long quotes in some cases, just to give you a, like a taste of the Catholic tradition on the question of the justification of war. And, I, and I'm really just going to kind of talk rather casually about this uh, and hope that we're able to have a conversation. Uh, there are at least two ways to begin to approach thinking about what the just war account of um, the use of force, the moral use of force uh, uh, is. And one of those ways is the one that perhaps we're almost more familiar with, and that's to think of it in terms of a theory. I'm going to resist that a little bit, argue against thinking of it as a theory, uh, and argue instead that it's really a kind of way of thinking about politics. And that's how I'm going to begin this talk. And then I'm going to focus towards the end of it a little bit on the more casuistical question, like the, the question of like sort of more particular morality about, is it okay sometimes to choose to kill people? Um, because that seems to be the question that war is somewhat um, invested in uh, and show you and discuss with you how the, the tradition has thought through um, that question. Okay. All right. So this is, what most of us think of as the just war thing, right? The just war theory. Uh, and there's countless books on it at this point. There's nothing particularly Catholic about it. Um, there are plenty of people who write about it who have no interest in Catholicism or their interest in Catholicism is in fact quite hostile to it. Uh, They're instead interested in this moral account of thinking through international politics, um, international law questions, uh, and uh, a kind of action analysis uh, with regard to the activity that occurs in war. There, there is, for instance, a whole analytic philosophical school of just war theory now. Um, under a guy named Jeff McMahon, who was a student of Mike uh, uh, Peter Singer. Some of you guys might be familiar, familiar with Peter Singer, the notorious or famous Princeton philosopher, depending upon how you regard him. But McMahon has really sort of exploded um, this analytic philosophical approach to the just war theory. I am of the opinion, uh, shared by a, a, an Anglican theologian named Oliver O'Donovan, that much of this kind of analysis right here is not, as he put it, load-bearing. Um, it's not really all that critical to thinking through the theory. What, it's, what it shows us is really the ways we think about a lot of moral action. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit. So just real quick, I think you guys are probably familiar at least somewhat with this, but maybe a couple of you are not. The first category of criteria is typically taken to be the jus ad bellum, right? The right to go to war category. Um, what, when do we have justice to go to war? And there are seen to be, typically speaking, three criteria, three classic criteria within that category. Right authority, right intention, and just cause. The order of those is contested. Now, part, I mean, everything in this is contested. 
like I, there are hundreds and hundreds of books on just war uh, analysis and 10 times that amount or more uh, articles on these questions. And some of the articles are literally, should right authority be the first criterion of U.S. ad bellum or should just cause? And I don't think personally it's all that critical. Um, I think, you know, it's almost like worth thinking of it like a, uh, almost like a prism that you're looking through and you can look through from different angles and see different things. If you look through it from the angle of just cause, you're going to be focusing your attention on something important, but not at the expense of the other things. And if you were to turn it around, now you'd be looking through right intention. Equally important, it's going to shed different kinds of light on different questions um, that you might not have seen from the other angle and so on. So right authority, who, who or what institutionally can make the judgment that it's appropriate to go to war. Now is the time to go to war. Right intention, what is the purpose, right? All, all of our action, right? All human action has an intentionality to it, right? And often we will say what we think that intentionality is. There's a whole literature on intentionality too. It's huge in philosophy um, and also in theology that really is worth exploring at some point where you can question whether people, when they say what they think they're doing is actually what they are in fact doing, but right intention. Generally speaking, the intentionality of war is supposed to be ordered towards peace. Okay. The intention of war is peace. It's peace seeking, which is already a contested idea as you could probably anticipate really wage war for the purposes of peace, right? That's a little bit paradoxical almost. And just cause, Lots of people argue just cause is, in fact, the most important of these criteria. I don't really think that that's true. They're all equally important, okay? Um, but just cause, what is the cause, the wrong that is being committed that permits you now, permits the authority now to seek peace, the intention, right, by virtue of this means, the instrument of war? Right. There has to be some precipitating cause that allows you to do this. And we see that there's nothing um, sort of remarkable about that. Anytime anybody goes to war now, they're going to publicly state this is why we're doing it. Putin has said why he's gone to war in the Ukraine. That doesn't mean he, in fact, has a just cause, but he's naming what he perceives to be or what he thinks we would buy as a kind of cause for his action. Right. OK, so those are the three criteria for Yosad Bellum, right, for the first category. Should we go to war? By what right do we go to war? Do we have justice in going to war? And obviously those ought to be satisfied. Right. They ought to be there ought to be satisfactory, good answers for each of those in order for us to think of the war as, in, in fact, justified. OK. The second category of criteria is jus in bello. The, so the first is often called like the right to fight. The second is called fighting right, you know, often like, you know, fighting in the right way, fighting in the moral way. And the first of these criteria associated with that are discrimination. International law refers to it as the principle of distinction. And this is making a distinction or discriminating between those who are legitimate targets of war or the use of force and those who are illegitimate targets of war or the use of force. Again, we do this all the time, right? They bombed a school, they bombed a hospital, 
right? When we're learning about this, what we're being told is, and we all sort of intuitively understand that, wow, that doesn't seem right, right? They violated the principle of distinction or discrimination. Some people within war are legitimate targets of violence and some people are not, okay? And we name those categories typically combatants and non-combatants, right? Combatants, the guys with the guns, right? Maybe even, and these, these things are argued, the guys making the guns, but the guys with the guns, generally speaking, um, and generally speaking, those people who are not fighting. There are lots of questions to be asked, you know, within those two very rough categories, lots of think, questions on the edges, questions about what if a guy throws his gun down and puts a white flag up or gets right, gets shot and is wounded, you know, can I finish him off, right? There's lots of questions that, you know, still sort of remain there, but you know, just so we have a general sense of that. And then proportionality. How much of this use of force can we use in um, pursuing this end, the end of war? There's, there could be some point at which it be, the pursuit of that good becomes disproportionate, right? We're killing too many people. We're, you know, we're destroying too much of their city, right? Some, it's a cost measuring type analysis. And these, the danger with approaching it like this often is that it looks like a checklist, right? And we just kind of go down the list and then we come up here and we go, oh yeah, you know, well, they killed a bunch of you know, innocent people. Now the war is, you know, unjust or something. And we think, well, that means all wars are unjust. This is not how the principle is operated in the Western tradition. It's operating to guide action, political action, um, action by those who are in, who are responsible for the care of a community. It's almost always going to be compromised, right? Because it's not merely one act, it's countless numbers of acts that are subsumed under this analysis. Right? It's a very global type analysis. These sorts of questions are critical, right, for thinking about it. These become where like the you know the difficulties really often emerge within the context of war. Most of us think, you know, oh yeah, the Second World War, that was pretty clearly a kind of righteous war, right? If there's a just war, there it is, right? Because we think that because the cause seemed right, right? The intention for, you know, did seem legitimate peaceful, and the authorities, you know, were all identifiable, right? Particularly, I'm talking about the Allies' side in this, right? Um, but we know in the prosecution of that war, we violated discrimination, right? Um, we chose to, the Allies chose to violate the principle of discrimination multiple times. Um, but the, this principle serves, nonetheless, to point that out to all of us, right? Like, we shouldn't have done that. Right. When we did that, we failed. It was a moral failing and so on. So that's the sort of rough outline of this approach. I do think, though, if you think about it, you're going to find most of your own action could sort of be broken down into these same kinds of questions. You know, you could actually do an analysis of your own acts. Right. You are the authority for most of the acts that you do. Right. You are doing them for some purposes. You have some cause, some reason for your act. And then you ask yourselves questions about like, well, who's this act bearing on? 
And to what extent is what I'm doing proportional? So it's a, it, it's a very standard moral analysis that's being applied to something that's not standard, that's not typical, right? The, the, situa the sort of extreme situations of war. Whoops. Okay. So I'm going to approach this first by like talking about politics, okay? And politics in particular in the context of the Christian tradition and in particular um, sort of general comments that are sort of taken as presuppositions of this account. You can tell I'm not really like the, I'm not the slides guy. I mean, I apologize. They're not really fancy or anything like that. Um, all of these questions are, have baked into them lots of claims, lots of assertions, okay? And any one of them can be broken out and I'm happy to discuss them with you guys. I mean, if you wanna raise a question now or afterwards, right? So the purpose of politics, right, is to serve the common good of a particular community. Okay, and it is the claim of um, the Aristotelian to mystic tradition, the Augustinian tradition that we share as Catholics, that there is a political common good. There's a good that is to be served by all the members of a political community and in particular, by those who have authority within that community. All of their action is measured by that its service to that good of that particular community, okay? There's a kind of discrete good, in other words. It's not something abstract, it's actually real, right? So you could speak even, for instance, of a common good of the University of Arizona, okay? And those who, you know, the Board of Trustees, the administration, et cetera, right? They serve that good in a particular way. So do, of course, all the individual members of the University of Arizona. And you can quite easily judge their individual actions or their corporate actions by whether they're serving Arizona. And I'm sure you guys do it all the time, right? Can you believe they're doing this, right? They built this ugly building over there, right? Or, you know, they, you know, they paid that coach that amount of money or they let the coach go or whatever it is, right? You're gonna make these kinds of judgments Presumably, that doesn't serve Arizona or it does serve Arizona. You're doing this kind of analysis that we believe to be sort of the way to think about the operation of politics. So, but, but to be clear, that's challenged by other people. Um, and also even the notion of a particular community is challenged. The use of force, here's another challengeable assertion, right? But this is a crit critical assertion of this account. The use of force, which includes even lethal force, is an instrument in the service of the common good, okay? The use of force by those in authority is an instrument that serves the common good. So we can judge the use of force by, again, its service of the common good, but we can't proceed as though the service of the common good, in particular of political communities, does not involve the use of force, even lethal force, okay? All right, so that's a critical assumption of this account. And then finally, peace is a principle of the common good. One way of thinking about the common good of a community is in terms of its peacefulness. Does it have a kind of harmony? Often, you know, if you wanna think of it a little bit more um, concretely, is there a kind of relationship between justice and order in that community? Is the order, is the community relatively settled, right? It's, it has a kind of justice 
that justice is also an ordered justice, right? People have a sense that things are going to go in particular ways. The laws are going to operate in particular ways, right? You could, even as I'm describing this, I hope that you're probably doing in your head a kind of an analysis of, well, wow, I mean, that actually makes it easy to think about the ways in which this or that community fails or succeeds, right? The the racial issues we had in 2020, remember the, you know, the summer of 2020, late spring, summer of 2020 and so on, right? Were in part a kind of expression of a challenge to the United States um, understanding of its own common good. What, right, there, there, there was a kind of disharmony that was relatively evident in our, in our people, right? In our populace that was sort of expressing some problem with regard to peace, right? We were not at peace. The common good requires that kind of peacefulness and the, the um, uh, political authority should be serving that by its activity, okay? So sometimes, right, you have to use force in order to serve peace is what this is saying, okay? Sometimes, routinely, right? And you can think about it, of course, in the context of the police, right? Um, I'm going to use the, the language of domestic, right? When I speak of domestic, I mean internal to a political community. That's what I mean by domestic, right? Domestically, it's typically done by something like a police force, right? That is typically the organ that is using the instrument of force for the purposes of the common good, which is why we can criticize the police when it does not, when their action does not serve the common good. It's not serving peace. Okay, or we can applaud them when their actions do serve peace and so on, right? We can measure them. When we're thinking about the use of the sword, right, or the use of force, um, the, the classic way of talking about it was the sword, the gladio, uh, you know, the gladios in Latin. Um, people like, you know, are often sort of puzzled about the Christian embrace of the use of force, right? This is the Schleihan Confession. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Okay, that's cool. It's great. That's awesome for me, right? Um, so the Schleichheim Confession, if you look at the date, right, and you guess, you know, the origin of the, right, it's a Germanic name, obviously, and the date is, what, where does the date put us historically? You guys know, like, roughly? Reformation, Reformation right. The, the date puts us in the middle of the Reformation. So this is one of the reforming groups, often called the Radical Reformation, sometimes referred to as the left-wing of the Reformation, which is interesting ways of describing these things, right? These are the guys who are basically the Anabaptists, the rebaptizers, okay, or one of the rebaptizing groups. That, that's what it means to be an Anabaptist. You're rebaptizing people who are already baptized, like the Catholics and the Lutherans and so on, but by saying, hey, those didn't count, right? You weren't an adult. Infant baptism doesn't count, right? So they're also typically pacifists, right? The Mennonites, right? Um, the Amish, right? They, they, these are the descendants of this group. Menno Simons was, from which we get the term Mennonites, Menno Simons was one of the signatories of the Schleitheim Confession. So they, of course, are, right, they will not fight. They don't believe in the, the appropriate use of force, or at least participating in it, and what I'm showing you here is that they recognize that the sword has a usefulness in the world, okay? So this is Article 6 of the Schleitheim Confession. We are agreed as follows, 
The sword is ordained of God. God has, in fact, ordained the sword. Right? Everybody's right about this. Everybody agrees about this. God did ordain the sword. The Catholics, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, they're all right about this. But it's outside the perfection of Christ. It punishes and puts to death the wicked. It's useful. It does what it's right. It does something good. It punishes and puts to death the wicked and guards and protects the good. In the law, the sword was ordained for the punishment of the wicked and for their death, and the same sword is now ordained to be used by the worldly magistrates. In the perfection of Christ, that means in our community, right? They are the perfection of Christ. In our community, however, only the ban is used for a warning and for the excommunication of the one who has sinned without putting the flesh to death. Simply the warning and the command to sin no more. We will not take up the sword. If you are called to be a follower of Christ, you will not do this. So the, the relevant thing for us is, of course, this is a dividing point in Christian history. Right? They're dividing on lots of issues, and baptism being one right, that I just identified for you. They're not dividing over whether God ordains a sword and whether the sword actually has a usefulness. It does. They are dividing over whether they as Christians should take it up. You are a follower of Christ, you are not to take it up. Let the worldly do that. That's not ours, okay? That is one approach to it. So it's not the kind of pacifism that we might think of as kind of like a contemporary pacifism, which might be more along the lines of nobody should use the sword, right? The sword is a failing, right? It's a bad thing. They are not saying that, okay? The, right. The scriptures, as they understand it, will not allow them to say that, okay? But it's clearly, you know, different um, than, our, than our approach to it, or than what is called the magisterial Protestant Reformation, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, the Zwinglians, etc. <clears throat> this is another model of, um, which is quite similar to the one before it. Um, this is, the, you know, the model, you know, the, the split between the church and state, um, and what we see here is this sort of notion that religion is on one side of our lives, the state is on the other side of our lives. I, I, I tend to my Christianity over here, I tend to my worldliness over here, I keep these two things separate, they don't really inform each other, right? Um, the, the famous like Lutheran way, and it's a bit of a caricature, you know, speaking of it, you know, my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing, right? I'm saved but I'll be fully in the world and do what is necessary. I can be a hangman, I can be a soldier, I can do whatever because it has no bearing on my religiosity, right? It has no bearing on my being a faithful Christian, okay? All right, that's a different approach to this than ours. And then there is arguably ours, okay? And I'm building this up from an Augustinian perspective. Uh, this is probably a phrase some of you are familiar with. This is from Augustine's The City of God, his enormous 22 book written over a decade uh, response to the claim that Christianity was at fault for the decline of Rome, among other things. Um, and he responds this, to this whole project by saying there's really two cities. Okay, there's two cities and they're defined by loves. This is one of his most famous quotations. Uh, two cities formed by two loves, the earthly by the love of self, 
even to the contempt of God, the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Okay, so there's two cities in the world, uh, and these cities are divided by their loves. There's a lot of stuff um, to discuss in there, too, about to what extent I'm actually settled in one of these, right? Can I speak of myself as being that person who loves God to the contempt of self? If you do a little analysis of yourself, probably wouldn't take too long to figure out, I'm not sure I belong in that city, right? You know, I may want to be there, but I'm not sure I, in fact, am in that city. And what this does, and I think the one of the power, one of the powerful things about this way of putting it is it shows the sort of mixed up situation that, that human beings, not merely Christians, human beings um, find themselves in. Okay, so this is just the first step. So instead of thinking of it in the perfection way and the worldly way, and perhaps that kind of split personality way, Augustine's inviting us to think of you know, membership in different cities based on where our love is ordered. So this is another model, um, the Augustinian model, the model, I think, that actually informs the just war approach, okay? So there are these two cities, and the heavenly city, those people who love God to the contempt of self, while they are on earth, it calls citizens out of all nations and gathers them together, you know, a society of pilgrims of all languages, all languages, right? We're not trying to get rid of any languages, referring to an earlier conversation. Not scrupulating about the diversities in the manners, laws, and institutions whereby earthly peace is secured and maintained, but recognizing that however various these are, right, these manners, laws, and institutions whereby earthly peace is secured, they all tend to one and the same end of earthly peace. All this diversity of nations and countries and their languages and their systems of law, I mean, he's pretty positive toward all of this, right? They all serve the one end of earthly peace. The city of, the heavenly city, right? The heavenly city, therefore, that's the it, is so far from rescinding and abolishing these diversities that it even preserves and adopts them, okay? So if you think you're a member of the heavenly city or trying to be a member of the heavenly city, you preserve and adopt them so long only as no hindrance to the worship of the one supreme and true God is thus introduced. That's the principle of exclusion right there, right? You will adopt these other things because they're all tending towards earthly peace. They're good so long as they're not hindering your worship of the one true God, which is a pretty weighty principle, right? But but it's, it also allows for a great deal of diversity within this. Okay, so this is the beginning of this other model. We see the diversity of the world we live in. We see the laws and manners and that it is, these are earthly. They're not heavenly. But we respect them because they all tend towards earthly peace. This is not unlike Jeremiah 29, right? Which Augustine is working on. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you. Pray for it to the Lord. For upon its peace, your own peace depends, right? Okay, so there's a scriptural warrant for what Augustine is saying. The prophet Jeremiah is saying, you will be exiled, right? You will find yourself exiled, dispersed in a hostile land. Seek its peace, seek its good, because that good, right, will be 
good for your own peace. So this is Augustine again, sorry. Also from uh, the City of God, this is Book 19, Chapter 26. Book 19 is kind of critical um, book in there, and I'm sure you probably can even read this in the back. Miserable, therefore, is the people which is alienated from God, yet even this people has a peace of its, of its own which is not to be lightly esteemed. Though indeed it shall not in the end enjoy it, because it makes no good use of it before the end. That means the people who are alienated from, from God will not make the proper use of the peace that they're given because of their alienation. But it is, our, it is our interest that it enjoy this peace meanwhile in this life. For as long as the two cities are co-mingled, there we are again, these two cities are co-mingled, they are mingled together. Uh, we also enjoy the peace of Babylon, which is an earthly city. Right, so as long as these things are commingled, even those who are in the heavenly city will enjoy that peace. For from Babylon, the people of God is so freed that it meanwhile sojourns in its company. And therefore, the apostle also admonished the church to pray for kings and those in authority, assigning as the reason that we, we may live in a quiet and tranquil life in all godliness and love. Tranquility, right, is a, is a term that Augustine connects to that order that is understood as peace, going back to the principle of the common good, right? So we may live in this, this kind of quiet, tranquil life, this peaceful life. And the prophet Jeremiah, when predicting the captivity that was to befall, to befall the ancient people of God and giving them the divine command to go obediently to Babylonia and thus serve their God, counseled them also to pray for Babylonia. It's the same quotation saying, in the peace thereof, shall ye have peace, the temporal peace which the good and the wicked together enjoy. We have an investment in this temporal peace. We are invested in it. It's not unlike what Schleitheim was saying, right? The sword does serve the good. It serves peace. But unlike Schleitheim, okay, unlike Schleitheim, where they're saying we will have nothing to do with this, Augustine asks himself, are we involved in this? Should, what role should we as Christians play in the maintenance and pursuit of this peace? This is one of my favorite quotations from the City of God. I think it's book five, I didn't put it up there. Um, this is the, like, the, the judge quotation. Um, it's really kind of weird and discordant with our sensibilities, okay? Don't get thrown off by his embrace of torture, all right? Um, <laughs> the point can be made probably without it or we may delude ourselves to the extent to which torture right, causing harms to others is not a part of our own judicial processes Okay, what shall I say of these judgments which men pronounce on men and which are necessary in communities whatever outward peace they enjoy Okay, it's necessary to the peace of communities, that there be judgments made by men, okay? We know that, right? Parents do this every day, right? We do it every day in our relationships with other people. And of course, institutionally, we have systems set up to help us do this. Melancholy and lamentable judgments they are, right? It's sad that we find ourselves in this situation. Since the judges are men, Right? They're mere mortals. They cannot discern the consciences of those at their bar and are therefore frequently compelled to put innocent witnesses to the torture to ascertain the truth regarding the crimes of other men. 
Thus, the ignorance of the judge frequently involves an innocent person in suffering. And what is still more unendurable, a thing indeed to be bewailed, and if that were possible, watered with fountains of tears, is this, that when the judge puts the accused to the question, that he may not unwittingly put an innocent man to death, the result of this lamentable ignorance is that this very person, whom he tortured, that he might not condemn him if innocent, is condemned to death both, both tortured and innocent. If such darkness shrouds social life, will a wise judge take his seat on the bench or not? Or no? Right? If this is the way, right, if this is the way the world works, is anybody going to step up and be, you know, and be a judge? Right? Knowing like this regrettable situation, knowing you're going to cause harms to people who are innocent. I mean, not, obviously not always, right? <laughs> right? Beyond question, he will. For human society, which he thinks it a wickedness to abandon, constrains him and compels him to this duty. Beyond question, he will. He will do this, even though he knows in his career as a judge, despite all of the safeguards he puts up, somebody is going to be harmed unjustly. Right? It's a feature of punishment. It's not, right, it's, it's not something that's avoidable because of ignorance, right? Because these, these are men. They can't actually see into the consciences of the people that they're judging, right? Okay? Beyond question, he will, because society constrains and compels him to this duty. And he doesn't mean because he's being coerced into doing it. He means because membership in a community requires people to do this for each other. Okay, it's a service to the good of the community to do these things, to bear the sword, right? To, to be one of those who bears the sword. Okay? All right? I hope there are questions about it. That's good stuff. Okay, so much later, right? Look at the date on this one. It's 1539, so just a few years after the Schleitheim Confession, uh, 12 years later, right? One of the great Spanish scholastic theologians of our wonderful tradition, Francisco de Vitoria, asked in his Relexio on the Law of War, may a Christian lawfully fight in and wage war? So this is where you're seeing the question a little bit more casuistically, a little bit more in terms of cases. Can a Christian actually fight a war? I mean, another way of putting it, of course, is can a Christian kill people? Right? Can they, you know, intend to kill people? And he looks to Aquinas. He's in the Thomistic tradition. He looks to Aquinas, who's glossing Romans 13.4, that it's lawful to draw the sword and use weapons against evildoers and seditious subjects within the commonwealth. Okay? This is domestically, in other words. Just as it is lawful to use that sword in your discreet political community for the purposes of punishing those who harm the community or threaten to harm the community, just like the police can do that, in other words, right? The Arizona, University of Arizona Police Department or whatever you have here, right? We all assume that they're out there working for you guys right now so you can safely cross campus to your cars, right? And just as they could 
Do something to protect you. Use force to protect you as you go to your car. So must it be lawful to use the sword to take up arms against foreign enemies as well. Okay? Just as it's lawful to do this in a domestic community, to be the judge in a domestic community, so too it must be lawful to do this against those from the outside who threaten our good. Arizona State kids, right, come and threaten you as you walk to the parking lot, right? Right? Presumably your police would not say, I'm sorry, we have no jurisdiction, we can't help you out here, right? They would probably, hopefully, intervene. Okay, so just as a government judges and even punishes internal malfactors, so it can judge external ones as well. Okay? If you accept the use of force internal to a political community, they are arguing you have to accept the use of force on behalf of that community against external threats or harms. Okay? That's one way of answering this kind of question, the domestic analogy. You look at the domestic situation and say, okay, we can apply this externally. But the catechism teaches us, you know, CCC is a catechism of the Catholic Church, um, that the deliberate murder of an innocent person is gravely contrary to the dignity of the human being, dignity of the human being okay? That is, if you're gonna like, say, well, what is the intrinsic evil here? Right. What's the intrinsic evil? Isn't there an intrinsic evil with regard to killing other people? And that's it right there. The deliberate murder of an innocent person. Okay. Sometimes it's called the direct, right? The direct killing of an innocent person is gravely contrary to the dignity of the human being, to the golden rule and to the holiness of the Creator. But the law forbidding it is uh, the law forbidding it is universally valid. It obliges each and everyone, always and everywhere. That's like a kind of here you go. There's an intrinsic evil. You cannot deliberately kill innocent people. Innocent being the key word there, right? Deliberately, too. Um, that's where you get into secondary effects, collateral damage type questions, proportionality questions in war. Okay? There's your intrinsic evil. The killing, it says, that was 2261. This is 2263. The killing that occurs in legitimate defense of persons and societies is not an exception to that prohibition, okay? It's not an exception to that prohibition against the murder of the innocent that constitutes intentional killing, okay? So it's not saying we're making an exception when we allow this kind of killing. It's a different kind of action, okay? Rather than it's an exception to that, it's a different kind of action. Innocent can mean a couple of things, right? It could mean, one, somebody who is judged guilty in a court for a particular kind of crime or violation, right, or harm, right? So you can think of a judicial process by which somebody um, is judged to be guilty of a crime causing a harm against another person, right? They would cease to be innocent at that point. It could be somebody who is threatening or harming someone, right, actively threatening or harming someone and not involve a, uh, a formal judgment, judicial you know, um, decision like the, the first one. That second description of innocent or as opposed to guilty um, is more typical to the war context. Right? Who are the innocent in war 
there are those who are not harming or threatening to harm others. So a soldier who gets wounded, right, who's ordered to combat, right, would be somebody who you would think of as, at that point, a kind of innocent, right? They're, they're removed from the situation of war. Now, it doesn't, what's interesting about, and maybe this is where you're going, is it's not a judgment of their conscience, right? It might be just like some poor sucker, right, who got drafted into some poor Russian kid, right, who was conscripted and is thrown into the Ukraine and wishes he was home with his mother, right? And now, but he's on the rock and the gun, and he's, in, you know, he's in Ukraine, and he poses a threat. He is, by the definitions of war, by international law, by this account, not an innocent. He is a legitimate target of lethal violence. And, and it, it, it's worth keeping in mind that the tradition that I, the older tradition I was looking at, did not find capital punishment a problem, right? And obviously, recent statements of the church are making it increasingly uh, um, inadmissible, I think is in fact the term, to justify capital punishment, even for those who are judged to be guilty of grievous crimes, right? But you can still bring force against them, like the force of incarceration, right? Um, you can still punish them, and you can only punish them because they because you have just cause, because they've committed some harm, right? And the authorities made that kind of judgment. Um, this is a huge issue, um, in, both in the laws of war, uh, and also in the morality of thinking through questions of killing. Another huge issue is um, this one, intentional, right? What is it intentional? Or when isn't it intentional? Uh, and there's an argument among some of us who write on war about whether soldiers killing other soldiers is intentional. Do soldiers intend to kill? Um, when they shoot, when they drop bombs, and so on. And there are some people who argue, no, that's not intentional killing. I am not one of those, <laughs> okay, um, just to be clear. But, but, there, but there's a plausible argument um, for what, what those guys are arguing, um, although I think they're wrong. Uh, okay, so, <laughs> I mean, I'm just giving you all, like, got my opinions, um, so you know where I stand on these things. Okay, so all of the things we've discussed, right, sort of, together inform the analysis um, that goes into this way of thinking about um, just war. You can even ask me questions about Francis too, if you've read Fratelli Tutti, Pope Francis says some things in there about war, um, which are rather interesting. Um, but th these are basically the presuppositions of this political account of morality, right? And what it's essentially saying is, going back to Vittoria's questions, can Christians fight? Yes, sometimes they can. And the effect of it is to say, yes, I argue, right? Sometimes Christians can intend to kill other people for the purposes of the common good, right? For the purpose of peace, right? In the service of peace. Another way to put it is it's not, war is not always contrary to peace. Okay, in very narrow circumstances, war can be done to serve peace. Very narrow. 
Um, and again, you know, we have to talk about modern warfare and what extent that's even made those narrow, narrower. But these are, these are the questions that the tradition has asked itself, in part because priests were, were hearing the confessions of soldiers, right, and trying to figure out were the soldiers sinning when they did this? You know, what did you know? Like when you when you killed this other person, when you, when you participated in the war, what did you know? What did you think about the justice of the cause? Did you have a sense of it? Um, did you kill somebody who was wounded already? Did you kill somebody who had a peasant who had nothing to do with the conflict and so on? Right? These are the kinds of questions the tradition asks itself over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, in very very meaningful ways. As, you know, young men are trying to figure out what, whether they're sinning or not. Um, yeah. Anyway, there's um, I mean, summing up more or less what I've said, and I know you're going to ask about the Ukraine. Um, the in, in my judgment, in my judgment, the Ukraine is a situation where rather clearly one side is engaging in an unjust war, and the other side is justly defending itself. I mean, that's what I think this analysis would lead us to conclude, and rightly lead us to conclude that there's an unjust party here, and there's a just party. And the killing that is done in defense of the Ukraine is justifiable, according to this account. It's a legitimate defense of the common good of that particular community authorized by those who are in authority there against an unjust action being done to them, a, a just cause. They have a just cause in that situation. It doesn't mean that all of their killing will be just, right? I mean, they're, they're, it's of course very likely that some of the some of the Ukraine's killing will be murderous as well, but it does mean that some of their killing um, is non-murderous, 